Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author Ronald T. Waldo, the author of Days of Reckoning, players punching their ticket out of Pittsburgh during the Barney Dreyfus era. Many star diamond performers punched their ticket out of Pittsburgh because of disagreements with management when Barney Dreyfus owned the team from 1900 through 1932. From Rube Waddell to Dick Bartell, Days of Reckoning chronicles why many of the greatest players in Pirates history were traded or released during Dreyfus's tenure owning the team. Ronald T. Waldo has written nine books about baseball history, might be ten now, with many devoted to examining the game during the dead ball era in the 1920s. His first book, titled Fred Clark, a biography of the Baseball Hall of Fame player manager, was released in 2010. Mr. Waldo also published in 2022 uh, Dead Ball Trailblazers, single season records of the modern era. A longtime member of Sabre, each of his five books covering baseball's dead ball era received nominations for the Larry Ritter Award award uh, that's given by that organization's Dead Ball Era Committee. The committee selected Dead Ball Trailblazers uh, in 2023. Ronald, welcome. Hopefully I have the bio up to date. I'm not sure on the book count, but uh, it's a lot of books. Uh, yeah, it's been amazing that it's been now since uh, 20, 2010, since the first one came out. Time does fly, that's uh, that's for sure. Yeah, let's talk first about your your interest in the dead ball era. We might have covered this a little bit in the prior interview, but you know, here we are again with another book from the era. What, what turned you on about the dead ball era? Actually, initially, I was more into the twenties because, for some reason, Kai Kai Collar became my favorite all time player. But then, with whack towards that, and one of the key players from that era that really drives your interest is probably the same for a lot of historians or people that are just casual lovers of baseball history would be Rube Waddell because yeah. he was definitely a unique individual. Yeah. And uh, having done a lot of research on the athletics of that era, uh, Waddell was a character for Connie Mack as well. Uh, I don't know how many of those stories are true, like him chasing fire trucks down the street and all that. <laughs> what, what do you that, think? What are some of the stories you think are absolutely true and are most entertaining? Uh, well, the fire trucks thing, a lot of people painted it as he was just like an overgrown kid. But he actually diligently desired to help firemen whenever they were battling a blaze. And a lot of times he hero- heroically uh, engaged and saved uh, mainly property uh, on occasion. It would be like a horse horse stables like the one in Washington, D.C. in 04, where he helped save hundreds of horses that belonged to international dignitaries, senators from uh, the government and things like that. But, uh, yes, there are a lot of interesting stories about uh, Rube. Uh, as of his short brief time with Louisville before coming to the Pirates after the consolidation at the end of 1899 when the uh, National League eliminated four teams, uh, he kind of drove Fred Clark, the Pirate manager and star outfielder, crazy uh, <laughs> with his antics. Yes. Whereas later, Mac kind of had more of a patient approach even though there were times where he lost his patience yeah. and suspended rube as well i remember one incident where i think it was waddell he uh it was near the end of the season or maybe they were about to go to the world series 
<clears throat> and he ends up hurting his arm by in a scuffle, knocking a hat off, knocking a straw hat off of a gentleman or maybe one of the other players. And uh, he ends up missing some games. Well, anyway, I, I find out later, like, why would he bother to knock a straw hat off of somebody in September? And I found out that it was tradition back then that no gentleman would dare wear a straw hat after Labor Day. And so if you did that, it was uncouth. And Waddell must have taken it upon himself to enforce this this standard. I don't know if you've yes. heard that story, but I, I'm... I'm uh, interesting you bring that up my current project i'm in the process of finishing dead ball mayhem there is a chapter that is devoted mainly to things from that season mm-hmm. and that is the main focus of the end of the chapter uh. did he hurt his arm uh fighting to get andy coakley his teammate another pitcher's hat or did he fake the injury because new york gamblers actually paid him off not to participate in the world series uh. so that's the two questions at hand it's just interesting, but the the hat story, yes, you you uh, depicted that perfectly. It was tradition back then that yeah, you were not supposed to wear a straw hat after Labor Day. I guess it's kind of like, isn't there something with shoes or something with if wearing white after a certain time? Yeah, for uh, females, I don't know if it's after Easter or whatever, but yeah, that was the tradition back then. Well, yeah, and it might be like wearing white pants and a white jacket or something after summertime, but who does that right. anymore? Those proverbial white shoes lawyers, whoever those people are. <laughs> 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 yeah, so Waddell, what a, what a character. I happen to think the hat story is probably more about the hat because it lines up with what was uh, a, a social norm at the time. But, yeah, the gambling certainly was rampant as well. Um, yeah, so... Uh, remember a story about Waddell when he passed away and what Eddie Plank did in spring training in honor of him striking out the side with with nobody in the field. And it's a, a, a stunt that Waddell had done, I think, in some guess. exhibition game along yes. the way. So, well, there's many, I guess, uh, instances where people said it happened. But yes, it, it never. I don't think it ever happened in a game when he pitched for Mac. No. But it was, yeah, supposedly, yeah, an exhibition game. So who are some of the other characters on these Pirates that were great players that were angry at Dreyfus? Uh, well, Jack Cheesebro, who ended up being focused in my Dead Ball Trailblazers book because he has the moder- set the modern era record for wins with 41 for the Highlanders in 04. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was one of the contract jumpers that left the team in 1902. But Jack kind of was as I say in the book, like the uh, Clash song, should I stay or should I go? He was the one guy that couldn't decide till the very end whether he should remain with the Pirates or take the money and uh, move on to the Highlanders for the 1903 season. He uh, understood that a lot of his success that year, going 28-6, and had to do with the great team behind him, Mm -hmm. and he didn't know exactly who his teammates would be in New York, because the Baltimore team was also going to morph with the Highlanders, and they had already been gutted by the Reds and the Giants, who p- purchased stock in the team and then took some of their players. When McGraw switched over leagues in 02, he switched from Baltimore to uh, manage the New York Giants and start that long, illustrious career there. Right. But uh, Dreyfus kind of took a disliking to Chet Cheesebro as the season went on to the point where he basically Cheesebro's asked 
if you could have three days of vacation and Dreyfus's response was, I don't care if you never come back. <laughs> so they had various contentious, uh, I guess, negotiations over, well, will you match what Johnson offered? And Dreyfus, I've always kind of ridiculed him, thinking that, well, I don't think Johnson, Dan Johnson actually offered you that amount of money. And in the end, he did refuse to pitch in a game against the American League All-Stars after the season ended. So his teammates voted him out of receiving any of the money from the proceeds since it was considered a barnstorming tour and they were allowed to divide up all the profits. Yeah. And that's what made him decide, hey, I'm going to jump to the other league. Then yeah. he, he left Pittsburgh and joined a barnstorming tour out west that used to go out west with Joe Canty on every uh, year after the season ended. Boy, could you imagine, so, like, the Phillies owner, John Middleton, saying to Aaron Nola, I don't care if you ever come back. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's just that kind of stuff you just wouldn't see in today's baseball. But, Ron, we got to take our first break. We're talking to Ron Waldo, the author of Days of Reckoning. We'll be right back. Sunbury Press Books brings you the history of Pennsylvania. Check out Lancaster's Golden Century, 1821-1921 by H.M.J. Klein. Donald Kent's The French Invasion of Western Pennsylvania or the Keystone Tombstone series written by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley. Click on the Books tab at sunburypress.com and find works of history, fiction, and nonfiction from the Keystone State. I'm back with Ron Waldo. I'm a little remiss. I know he sort of jumped into some of the characters without explaining the era and that situation. Right around the turn of the century, um, it was a bit rocky in baseball as the American League comes on the scene. Um, it, t- tell us a little bit about that era of the 1900s and uh, you know what kind of competition yeah, the, is there? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. When the American League decided to go as a major organization after vapes, they morphed from the Western League to the American League in 1900. In 1901, they decided to become a major league and challenge the National League. They started to peer their players from the National League teams. Now, for the first year, the Pirates were fairly unscathed. They only lost one player uh, from 1900, third baseman Jimmy Williams. And the public stance of Ban Johnson, the American League president, always was Pittsburgh is hands off and supposedly instructed the teams in his league. We want them to remain strong so that they have a non-competitive race in 1902 where nobody interest will wane and people will come flock to watch our games in the American league, Mm. which is what happened. The pirates basically destroyed the whole league and beat out the Brooklyn superb trying to get pirates players for two years. The main coup that they were hoping to acquire, of course, was Hannes Wagner. They pestered him on numerous occasions and uh, he rejected those requests because he was playing in his hometown. He always felt Dreyfus treated him fairly, and which he did. Dreyfus ended up eventually paying him 10000 a year salary, which back then was considered exorbitant. Because when the American League came into being, the average, well, actually it was the maximum you can make in the National League was uh, $2,400. Mm-hmm. Wow. So in that backdrop, that's when Johnson and Summers came to Pittsburgh to try to steal some pirate players for, and they came in August when there was a Pirates had a rain out with the Giants at home. They talked to numerous ones, got was able to get five of them to switch leagues, and the uh, a couple guys changed their mind and tried to uh, return of those guys. Uh, the main one, thing helping as a liaison, which he wasn't. So, so some propaganda going on, and you know some of that behind the scenes uh, stuff that was prevalent throughout baseball history. 
Yeah. So I guess is is this Barney Dreyfus's fault, or is it that his team was so uh, successful that all the other teams wanted to poach his players? Uh, well, Barney had foresight. He actually in '01 got wind of stuff going on, and he basically signed all of his players at what they wanted. So he asked them, "What what are your salary demands?" And that's what he gave them. Mm-hmm. He was actually very generous as, as far as an owner. And had a reputation for that throughout the league. I mean, he gave them decent bonuses. Uh, the team stayed in the best hotels when they were on the road. Uh, I mean, you talked about hats. That was always a big thing for some reason back then. He actually bought them uh, fedoras or der- derby hats on one occasion as a token of his appreciation for how well they played. But the team did have a lot of really good players because when they uh, – amalgamated the Louisville and Pittsburgh clubs, two teams that were middle of the road or mediocre. Before that, they became a powerhouse because you added the best of the, each team and it became dominant. Uh, took them a little while in 1900. They finished second, but they won three straight pennants in 01, 02, and 03. Right. Wagner came from Louisville, right? Didn't... Yeah, Clark Yeah, Clark managed in Louisville, and then he took over here, mm-hmm. uh, supplanting Patsy Donovan, who had managed in Pittsburgh on two occasions. And Johannes Wagner, he's he's an interesting figure for me as well. I, I think his history, of course, the baseball card question, you know, why why were there only so many printed is, is uh, part of the legend about him. But I think that kind of overshadows how great Wagner was as a player. And it's interesting that Dreyfus is able to hang on to him. You're right, maybe because Wagner's a Pittsburgh, uh, you know, born and bred. But... Um, was there any other favoritism towards Wagner? And maybe talk a little bit about Wagner and his uh, his status in the league. Wagner, it, I mean, in in the history realm, they always make the comparison when Ty Cobb came in the league that Wagner was more the gentleman, Cobb was more the uh, firebrand. But Hannes did get involved in confrontations on the field. I mean, he did have his moments. I know he was suspended unjustly one time for supposedly hitting an umpire with a bat. When John T. Brush was part of the, that was a note too, part of the three-man committee that oversaw the National League because they didn't have a National League president that year. And he based his opinion on what he read in the newspapers, but when the ump ended up being a five-day suspension because he lifted it after five days. But yeah, Hannes had a temper in 04, which was a bad season for the team. They had injuries and issues after losing to the Americans in the first Modern World Series the previous year. Hannes and Jimmy Sebring, the Pirates' uh, second-year outfielder had numerous disagreements because Hannes acted as manager when Fred Clark couldn't. He he was out with injury that year for a, a good amount of time. And when they were on barnstorming games, they had a couple bad ones in localities, you know, in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And when the fans came to see the Mighty Pirates and you were getting vanquished by a local team, they usually t- tended to turn on you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, him and Sebring had some issues. In fact, Sebring challenged him to a fight in the dugout. The, mm. uh, I guess when they were playing the Cardinals one day at Exposition Park. Wow. Yeah. The... So yeah, Honest was a competitor. He actually was felt the wrath of gamblers who really were a thorn in Dreyfus's side throughout the first two decades of the 20th century because they actually caused a lot of uh, problems uh, with their heckling and their. Uh, abusing a player's, you know, they would make small bets, and when a player made a mistake, they basically wrote him for the whole season. Mm. 
So, yeah, there was even one game where Wagner made a couple errors, and even though he had the game-winning hit, they uh, unmercifully uh, roasted him because, I guess, it cost them money because they were making bets during the game. Well, who does that? Well, I guess everybody's doing that now, huh? <laughs> Isn't that amazing how we've gone from, you know, this era in the early 20th century when gambling was prevalent and seedy and... You know, lots of things going on behind the scenes. Of course, the players weren't as well paid, maybe more easily tempted back then. And then yes. we have this whole era after the White Sox, the Black Sox scandal, where it's like this pristine, thou shalt not gamble. You shouldn't even think about gambling. I mean, we can talk about Pete Rose and whether he really did anything. Like, in, if it was done today, would it? Would he be banned uh, and and then all of a sudden the gambling's back. So I don't know. How, what do you? How do you feel about that? It's just an odd. Uh, it's like you know, you, you, yeah, you go full full circle. Yeah, it is an odd thing. But uh, yeah, that that's actually you know, it, you watch you watch well any sport you watch games and it's the commercials or yeah, whichever different uh, entity you can place your bets through them. You can do these type of things through this. Uh, uh, gambling outlet and stuff it that's uh, just a weird weird way things have uh have changed yeah well, bef- before the black Sox thing hit i mean that wasn't the first time there was a supposed issue if i stuff was going on all along but i mean the, the, there used to be open gambling amongst owners uh, it, i don't know it just i guess when it got to the point where you're th- you're you're th- throwing a world series that's when i guess they yeah. took it a little more more seriously yeah. And then, then that that brought about the uh, installation of Landis as the commissioner, which is actually where one step where Ben Johnson's power started to dissipate once he was because Johnson actually, in my opinion, was the most powerful person in baseball before Landis uh, mm-hmm. arrived. He, he even he had a lot of control mm-hmm. over everything that went on, and not just his league, both leagues, because of him being on the national commission, which was the three body commission which was him the national league president and gary herman the cincinnati red zoner all right ron we're going to take our second break I'm talking to ron waldo the author of days of reckoning we'll be right back sunbury press books opens the door to pennsylvania dutch and german history with our imprint distal fink press find out about the lives of figures in early american history through the muhlenbergs of pennsylvania or conrad weiser friend of colonist and mohawk by paul a wallace joseph g rosengardens the german soldier in the wars of the united states or the indians of berks county by db bruner check out the wide variety of available works both fiction and non-fiction at sunburypress.com I'm back with Ron Waldo, the author of Days of Reckoning, players punching their ticket out of Pittsburgh during the Barney-Dreyfus era. And I know we're two-thirds through this, and I've been focusing so much on those first few years of the 1900s. Your book's going all the way through 32, so Dreyfus is there quite a while. Uh, What kind of success and failure does Dreyfus have over 33 years of ownership? Uh, The first century of the or first century, the first decade of the 20th century, the Pirates were the first dynasty with the three straight uh, National League pennants, lost the first World Series of participation between the two leagues in 03. Contended every every year, and one year they finished fourth. That was the lowest they finished that uh, decade. And then they, of course, claimed the pennant in 1909 and then beat the uh, Tigers in the full seven games with right. because of Babe Adams going 3-0, and the rookie pitcher. 
then they kind of had a little slide in the second decade uh, where they actually became a last place team at one point. Then he rebuilt, restocked, and the 20s were another successful uh, decade for him. They won the 25 World Series. They lost in 27 to the Mighty Yankees, but contended for many other years. But, of course, Barney's patience, he, he wanted pennants every year, so the, the managers didn't last long for some reasons. Uh, George Gibson, the former catcher, managed the team from 20 through part of 22, and in 21, the Pirates actually looked like they were going to win the pennant that year. But they choked at the end. The Giants uh, buried them in a five-game series up at the Polo Grounds at the end of August. And the Pirates never were able to recover their momentum. And the Giants ended up passing them, which galled Dreyfus because that was his major nemesis. And, of course, it was interesting you brought up the Black Sox scandal. There were fans in Pittsburgh that actually thought that the Pirates tanked. This really was. There was a lot of guys on that team like Rabbit Moranville and a few others that basically enjoyed the nightlife too much, and that's basically what uh, brought them down because lack of conditioning later in the season, even though some people think it was a team that overachieved early because they just hustled, that they were basically a middle-of-the-pack team that actually overachieved for the first uh, two-thirds of the season. But the so, 20s were a very successful decade for the team as well. Who were some of, actually the, yeah, who uh, were, go ahead. I was going to say, who were some of the successful, who were some of the players, best players on those 20s teams? Well, 20s, you had uh, Wilbur Cooper was the star pitcher until he became part of the big trade, but the Cubs had kind of turned around their team a little bit. They got rid of Cooper. They got rid of Moranville. Charlie Grimm, probably the best fielding first baseman of that decade. Uh, Grimm and Moranville were part of that group that liked to have fun and party a little bit, so he sent them to Chicago and prior to the 25 season, and they ended up taking the pennant beat in the centers. But you had... You know, an aging Max Carey had a great year in 25 and then was the star of the World Series. Uh, hurt his ribs in the one game, I think game five, in a collision with Washington's Bucky Harris. And then he still played and had a great game seven, had uh, three, I think three doubles. And then afterwards, he spent time in the hospital. And then, of course, the next year, the whole, what they call the ABC affair because it involved Babe Adams, Carson Bigby, and Max Carey, the veteran players. Well, there was a revolt because Fred Clark had come back as team vice president and assistant manager. And in the dugout, he sometimes said things the way a the salty veteran would from back in the old era. And there were some players in the 20s it wasn't back in the old era. It was different, so they didn't like it. So they took a vote to remove him from the bench. The vote actually favored him, which means some people got cold feet. And, of course, he won at retribution. And as a result, Adams, Carey, and Bigby were jettisoned from the team. Hmm. And then that incident actually didn't make Kai Kai Tyler happy. So when McKechnie was fired after the season, Bill McKechnie, the manager, Donnie Bush came in in 27. Him and Tyler didn't hit it off. And then he ran a foul with uh, Bush and then Barney Dreyfus, and he was sent on his way to the Chicago Cubs after 1927. So a lot of good players, and a lot of them actually were moved on to other teams wow. for different reasons. Lots of churn in, on that roster. <laughs> So imagine an outfield for years of Kai Kai Collar and the two Wainer brothers. That would have been amazing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, only happened part of 27. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's sort of the, the story with Pittsburgh and the last hundred years after all this, you know, little couple, couple years of uh, success. I'm talking baseball. Of course you had your Steelers there for a while. Um, Penguins for a while, but uh, thinking baseball, 
But when was the last great, well, well, yeah, the family. I hated that 1979 Pirates team. <laughs> they beat my Phillies. <laughs> in oh, 79. Man, that, is a good, that was a good rivalry. It, kind it of was. From the Pirates, Reds to the Pirates, Phillies. Oh, I, I absolutely love watching Steve Carlton face Willie Stargell and Dave Parker. Those guys did not have a clue how to hit Carlton slider. You, you, I think well, he's talking lefties, about every yeah, time. That, yeah, that lefty-lefty matchup for those guys was tough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but oh, I'm getting away from the <laughs> the early years here. Um any, anything else you wanted to add about those early Pirates teams? I mean, how, how many total pennants did Dreyfus win? Uh, National League pennants, uh, uh, six. Hmm, that's pretty good. Came close a few other years, too. Well, oh, eight. Yeah, he came close the year of the Merkel incident. I mean, they were in the hunt. In fact, they could have won it at the end. That's also another chapter in my new book, a lot of stuff that I'm hoping I, I always wanted to tackle that particular thing because I'd never done that and I did it with a different little angle yeah. partially for it so well you know but the Pirates could have easily won that pennant that year too so with uh, we got about three four minutes left tell me about the new book that we're going to see before too long uh, the new book uh, is tend to be titled Dead Ball Mayhem Scoundrels Scandalous Behavior and Tragic Events and that's basically what it does it looks at different things from that dead ball era that fit into those categories uh as far as the tragedies go uh it's the suicides of win mercer chick stall uh harry pulliam when he was the national league president ed delahanty's unfortunate accidental death but uh when doing the mercer chapter i actually of all the books i've done i, I just find him one of the most fascinating people i've ever researched or wrote about i knew kind of that he had committed suicide before i started but i didn't know all the details about his life and career he was like considered like an adonis because he was handsome charming uh not rough around the edges like players that debuted in the 1890s mm -hmm. uh, he was a common starter on ladies day when he pitched for washington because they would flock to the ballpark to watch him because he was handsome but he had the one uh demon and it was gambling <laughs> mm -hmm. he loved to bet on horses he wasn't good at it and he loved uh i guess rolling the dice uh being involved in dice games too so you know eventually he committed suicide while on a barnstorming tour out to california in uh 1903 but yeah i, I just find him fascinating uh just uh like with the current pirate book uh the local kid from dormont al mamu right. that was probably the favorite chapter in the book on that um that's currently just been released just because he was kind of from a rich family kind of was he was a little bit spoiled had great success, but had an attitude. Then just crashed and burned, and they traded him to Brooklyn. Port Jarvis couldn't deal with him. Well, you mentioned Delahanty. Yes. Was it an accident? Was he murdered, or was it there's suicide? A lot, there's a lot. Well, the suicide thing, it's tough, because he did send the message to his wife when he abandoned the team in Detroit to meet him in Washington, and in the note, he said, the training, I hope the train crashes. So that would kind of say, okay, did he, but then the murder thing, did some highwaymen, yeah, rob him? Because when his body was found at the bottom of the falls a couple days later, the jewelry that he had on him was gone. Now, a lot of his clothes had been torn away too, but the tie that had a diamond stud pin in it, the tie was still on his uh, body, but the diamond stud was not in the tie. 
Now, the family, after an investigation, reasoned that he actually died accidentally, and they blamed the railroad for putting him off in a remote area instead of just uh, taking him alone and having police arrest him for being disorderly on the train. But definitely, probably before that, in the 1890s, one of the most deadly hitters of in baseball history. He just was yep. unbelievable as far as his hitting capability. Wow. Yeah. An interesting player, and he had some history with the Phillies as well. Well, Ronald, uh, how, what's the reception for Days of Reckoning so far? Any any feedback? Uh, I did have a Facebook friend who purchased the book once it hit Amazon, and uh, I, he's, I'm going to have to commend you because one of his comments was he said the cover is outstanding, So, and since you designed it. <laughs> Thank he you. said it just gives you he said he gives you a feel for that t- time period of baseball yeah yeah i went for but that he, retro he, look on it so I, I actually enjoy it too it just has a great retro look to it mm-hmm. really uh outstanding is a good word for it now he's actually partway through the book he said it's actually phenomenal so good good well you can judge a book by its cover then <laughs> <laughs> well ryan and plus i'll oh do i have time for one more thing yeah go ahead say? yep uh, probably I still communicate with Kai Kai Kyler's granddaughters from when I did the Kyler bio a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And I'll be letting her know that the book sucked because when I did a virtual thing for a celebration for Kai Kai last year, I talked about stuff that was in the book. And I, I know she'll probably, you know, up in Harrisville, it's a small community, but she'll get the word around. So I would imagine the reception is will be good up there. Just not the parts about Donnie Bush because they don't particularly like him up there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Even to this day, huh? Uh, uh, yes, when they read the bio, no, they didn't. They did not really like him. Mm-hmm. So, well, Ron, it's always a pleasure. Uh, All right, Lawrence, I appreciate it. Best of luck with this book and with writing the new one. We'll have you back when the new one's out as well. Okay. We've been talking to Ronald Waldo, the author of Days of Reckoning. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.